0: Today's episode is sponsored by the Election Ride Home podcast. Someone's going to be challenging Donald Trump for the White House, and the Election Ride Home podcast is dedicated to figuring out who that someone, or maybe even multiple someones, will end up being. Every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor, Chris Higgins, catches you up on what happened on the campaign trail. Who's up, who's down, what issues are getting traction, and what the polls say. It's a 15-20 to minute show that keeps track of all the latest and summarizes it so you don't have to be nervously refreshing your web browser 12 times a day. It's like TLDR as a service. So if you want to catch up on what you missed on your way home search your podcast app and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the fact that our election system is designed to fail in ways that actually undermines the legitimacy of our elections and, by extension, our entire democracy. So, no big deal. Before we get started, though, I just want to give you this this thought that I, I realized as I was doing my research for this episode, that I have really not been doing a good job of presenting. Now, I'm going to say the other side, but it's not what you think. If if you've only been paying attention to uh, security experts, election experts, and uh, heard what they've said about the need for hand-marked, human countable paper ballots as the gold standard of the most secure possible way to run an election, then you may have missed the counter arguments that don't come from voting machine lobbyists. Most of the arguments uh, on the other side do come from voting machine lobbyists, and that's the primary reason that so many people uh, and you know municipalities and states around the country prefer the voting machines because they're getting paid by the lobbyist. But there are also legitimate arguments to be made in favor of electronic voting machines or electronic ballot marking devices which create paper ballots sometimes which are human countable sometimes bizarrely uh, use barcodes which are not human countable and are therefore ridiculous uh, and these arguments come from the disability community advocates for persons with disabilities argue strongly that everyone in the country should be using electronic ballot marking devices or electronic voting machines that are as secure as we can possibly make them that there should be security audits that there should be election result audits but that we should be using these machines because they are better for people with disabilities they are designed to accommodate people with disabilities So I can understand very clearly where that argument is coming from, and I just want to mention now to please stick around at the end of the show because I'm going to talk for a while. It's too long for me to do as a preamble here, but I'm going to talk for a while about some of the arguments being made by the disability community and my thoughts about them. I am very sympathetic to a lot of the arguments they are making. I want to be very sensitive to the arguments they are making, And I will explain ultimately why I am not persuaded by the arguments they are making. So stick around for all of that at the end. So for now, we'll move on to the rest of the show. And I just want to say uh, as a reminder that if you want to support the work we do, just two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that, plus members-only bonus content with extra clips and commentary. Uh, We are in particular need of new members right now. Everyone's being affected by Trump fatigue syndrome. So we've been losing members and listeners over the last two to three years. And so if you are sticking around and you get value out of the show, then you could very much help us reverse this very slow multi-year decline we've been seeing uh, by signing up for a membership now. I mean, especially if you've been listening for a long time and getting value out of it for a long time, it would be very much appreciated if you could chip in now to support us sort of in our time of need. So you can sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. And now, onto the show. Clips today come from The Takeaway. The Bradcast, The David Pakman Show, and The Rachel Maddow Show.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Whew, what a night. 2.17 for Bush. 172 for Gore after Florida was moved back into the undecided column.
2: The Supreme Court overturned the Florida Supreme Court decision that allowed manual recounts of ballots. Just moments ago, I spoke with George W. Bush and congratulated him on becoming the 43rd president of the United States.
3: This is the line to vote on election day.
1: Look at all the people. All these people.
3: One so in broke down. And then one of the next ones broke down, and then the next one broke down.
2: I waited uh, in total about two hours and 12 minutes to vote. The voter doesn't even need to leave the booth to hack the machine. And how much does that cost?
4: $15.
2: So for $15, I could hack the vote. From making it harder to register and stay on the rolls, to rejecting lawful ballots, we can no longer ignore these threats to democracy. And then there was 2016.
3: Huge news, actually, the AP now projecting that Donald Trump has won the state of Pennsylvania.
4: That is uh, the race, frankly. They said this would never happen. He didn't stand a chance in the electoral college that voters in swing
3: states wouldn't vote for Donald Trump. And guess what? They were all, all of them wrong. The indictment charges 12 Russian military officers by name for
0: conspiring to interfere with the 2016 presidential election. There were multiple, systematic. Efforts to interfere in our election. And that allegation deserves the attention of every American.
2: Foreign interference in the 2016 election was a wake up call for many Americans who may have taken the security of our election infrastructure for granted. And while there's been a significant effort to respond to that interference, cybersecurity journalist Kim Zetter says there's much more work to be done. When asked to grade our election system, Kim gives us a... Um, C to C minus. So that's not a failing grade, but it's definitely not an A plus. I spoke with Kim about the latest efforts to address election security and whether Robert Mueller's warning that our elections are still vulnerable is being taken as seriously as it should be.
5: There's still a long way to go. I think that we've made a lot of progress in terms of educating election officials and actually getting them to acknowledge that there's a problem. Many of them have willingly brought in uh, the Department of Homeland Security to do some risk assessments of systems. But all of the focus right now has been on Internet-facing systems like the websites that are used to register voters, the back-end database for voter registration, and the the websites for reporting results – Um, What it hasn't focused on, however, are the actual voting machines themselves. No one has really looked at those, and we have uh, decades of research showing that they are vulnerable to hacking.
2: And we've known that they're vulnerable to hacking. One of the things that, that, that came out of the Mueller report was our vulnerabilities. Why is it that we don't seem to be connecting the dots more strategically here?
5: Well, uh, the federal government has had a real leg on election security because they've never been in charge of it. Um, They've never been in charge of elections. They're locally managed. And so it's really been handed off to county election officials around the country who often don't have any kind of budget to hire even, not let let alone a security person, but even an IT person. And so they're often contracting out services, uh, programming machines, taking care of the machines and things like that. And security has never been a priority for them. Regardless of, you know, all of the two decades worth of researchers talking about how vulnerable the machines are, local election officials have really kind of ignored that and pushed back against that for a long time. They've listened to the voting machine vendors who tell them over and over again, no, everything is okay, you're fine. And so there's been a real lag of the federal government stepping in and looking at this kind of issue. And now that we have DHS performing that role, I think we're starting to get a little more uniformity.
2: Mentioned the Mueller report, but I want to drill down a little more specifically here because I feel like it has fallen off of our radar a bit. There's one quote in particular that says, In November 2016, the GRU sent spear phishing emails to over 120 email accounts used by Florida County officials responsible for administering the 2016 U.S. election. And it goes on to say, quote, we understand the FBI believes that this operation enabled the GRU to gain access to the network of at least one Florida county government.
5: What is happening in Florida's election system? <laughs> you know, that report came out in April and very swiftly we, d- we learned that it wasn't actually just one county that apparently was compromised in the phishing attack, but two counties. And, I mean, let's look at that timeline. We are in 2019, and this happened in 2016. And none of that was made public um, for the longest time. You know, what the Mueller report has shown is that there is a real problem with disclosure, with sharing of information, uh, critical information and also conflicting information. Because as the Mueller report talks about a voting technology company that had uh, malware installed on it, well, that seems to be pointing to a Florida company called VR Systems. And VR Systems has insisted that the FBI's never told them that they were successfully hacked. And so I think there are a lot of questions raised by the Mueller report that someone in government should be answering.
2: So one of the things that uh, comes up here is the role of the FBI in investigating cyber crimes. What exactly does the FBI do compared to,
5: uh, for example, what DHS is doing? So uh, so the FBI is doing criminal investigations. And so if you are a company that has been hacked, um, suspects that you've been hacked, what you will often do is – You'll do one of two things. You will either contact the FBI first or you will contact a private security uh, firm to come in and do a forensic analysis of your network. The FBI will come in and oftentimes they will simply take the report of the private forensic company and use that as their evidence. We saw that in the DNC hacking case where a private company came in. And looked at the servers and did an analysis. The FBI wasn't allowed to come in and look at the servers um, for for obvious reasons. You know, victims are concerned about bringing the FBI and giving them free reign to um, sift through their network. So in this case, the FBI obtained the information from the private security company, obtained mirror images, and also were able to look at that themselves at that time. But sometimes the FBI doesn't do any forensic analysis. They rely on whatever uh, assessment has been done by the private company. They will, however, do an investigation to trace back the attack to, to the perpetrators if they can. We have an election,
2: just a a little election coming up in 2020, Kim, and I'm feeling worse about where we stand as voters right now in terms of our, our election security. Where do, where does this leave voters? Is there enough time to even attempt to fix any of these problems, particularly in in vulnerable states like Florida?
5: Yeah. So there, I mean, so they've, they've made progress in terms of taking voter registration databases offline or separating other systems from the internet, The you know DHS has given them a lot of a checklist of security practices that that they should be following, but as I pointed out, many of these um, counties don't have money to hire a security person. So you can give them instructions and checklists, you know, one time, and you can do an assessment of their network. But security is an ongoing thing, and you can you can alter the security of your system with one move. And I'll give you an example. Um, Oftentimes, you know, the election management systems, which are the systems that are used to program voting machines and also are used to tabulate votes after the end of the election. Election management systems are a critical component in the election infrastructure, and those machines should never be connected to the Internet. So let's say you do have an air-gapped machine that isn't connected to the Internet, but you have a worker who's sitting there on a machine that's not connected to the Internet, and suddenly their um, their mobile phone dies, and they want to charge it. And what do they do? They stick that USB cable uh, connected to their phone into that um, air-gapped machine. You've now compromised that machine because that mobile Mobile phone is connected to the internet, and so election workers um, don't have that mindset of thinking through security in the way um, a security professional is, and so regardless of all of the good efforts of trying to secure election offices, all of that can be done um, with one mistake. We're talking about the issue of election security uh,
2: for Independence Day, and you know, folks are probably going to be at the beach or enjoying a barbecue, but. What do you think people need to know about the importance of our democracy at this point and the importance of free elections and fair elections right now as we head into this uh, very important political season?
5: I think one thing that we still haven't resolved is what do we do when anomalies uh, crop up in elections? We have problems that occur in every election, and usually when the election is over, no one wants to hear about it. We have now also, uh, you know, with the presidential campaigning uh, being so long, the season being so long, by the time the presidential election occurs and it's over, people are tired and they want to move on. So we've had multiple elections where there have been problems that crop up in elections. Uh, Sometimes activists point them out. Sometimes some of the uh, candidates point them out. And there's often um, a real uh, offensive effort to prevent any kind of investigation. We saw in 2016 where people were calling for recounts. And there was a lot of pushback on that and, and recounts were prevented. We saw that, of course, in the Al Gore um, Bush case in 2000, where there were problems in the election and people were trying to get to the bottom of it and it went to the Supreme Court and cut that short. So we have something in, in in this country that is really resistant to actually looking at problems that crop up in elections. And until we resolve that issue, you know, voters are sort of left in this in this situation over and over again of being asked to trust the results of election but no one is giving them a reason to trust.
2: Kim, is that resistance political?
5: It's partly political and it's also just partly the the fatigue that voters have after the election. But I mean if you if you look at the case in 2000 with Al Gore, first of all Al Gore was reluctant to push back on that because he knew what it would look like as the losing candidate. And and then when he did push back, the results were and you know what was anticipated, he was called a sore loser. And so what often happens is that the, the losing candidate is, is not the best one to bring up these problems because that becomes political. And so it's left to activists to really, um, try and push for recounts and try and push for answers.
2: So I don't, I don't want to be cynical here, but I'm going to take a stab at it and say the losing candidate would rather not look bad than preserve our electoral integrity. I just want to make sure I'm understanding that correctly.
5: Yes, that is the situation that we have. And we really have to take it out of the hands of the candidate. If we really care about our elections and if we really care about the integrity of elections, we have to um, put this in, in law. We have to put these in, in statutes that when these anomalies occur, these are the steps that you need to take so that it's not put on the responsibility of the losing candidate to bring this up. It should be in statute that if this and this happens, these are the steps that need to be taken.
6: It did not require a nation state like, say, Russia to breach the records of more than 100 million people at one of the world's largest financial institutions, Capital One. It took one single person, one single person who lives with cats at her apartment in Seattle. For all I know, she may have been a broadcast listener uh, on Seattle's KODX 96.9. And we only learned about all of this after the nation's third largest financial institution was finally contacted by a third party who tipped them off to the breach. Otherwise, they and you and we may have never even known about any of this. So with that in mind, feel free to go back to my program yesterday. With Marilyn Marks of the Coalition of Good Governance, you can download it for free at bradblog.com regarding her lawsuit to force hand-marked paper ballots for the state of Georgia instead of unverifiable computer ballot marking devices. And listen again to that part of uh, of the broadcast yesterday where she meant a chilling part, frankly, where she mentioned that uh, at at a hearing on, on the case uh, that she has filed in federal court last week, Uh, Georgia's secretary of state's office employee admitted in in open court that just three people, three independent contractors, not state workers, not that it would make a difference, frankly, but just three people working out of a garage do the programming for, quote, 100 percent of Georgia's 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting machines across the state.
5: Three people working at home on home Wi-Fi with no idea whether or not it was protected or secured in any way whatsoever, programmed the entire state of Georgia's voting
6: system. Right. And did they do it correctly? Did they do it incorrectly? Did they flip votes with that programming, either on purpose or accidentally? Don't know. Nobody will ever know. Unless somebody has access to their Wi-Fi, maybe. So uh, if whether they did it, whether somebody else did, who knows? But why worry? The new Republican secretary of state in Georgia, uh, who just replaced the previous Republican secretary of state, who became governor last November, overseeing his own election on 100 percent unverifiable touchscreens, He became governor, Brian Kemp, despite the fact that many had predicted the Democrat Stacey Abrams would, in fact, win, and despite all sorts of computer failures across the state. But don't worry, that new Republican Secretary of State will keep all of your voter records and votes themselves safe from both big, bad Russia and the woman with the cats at her apartment in Seattle, and even from, by the way, Marilyn Marks and her team of experts who have had to go through extraordinary measures just to partially examine parts of the system used to tally Georgia's votes in 100% secrecy for the past 20 years in that state. But I'm sure it's all cool, nothing to worry about. And besides, voting on touchscreen computers that cannot be overseen by the public is way more convenient, isn't it, than securely filling in an oval with a pen on a piece of paper? Yes, the, uh, the state is actually arguing, the state of Georgia, that they cannot move to handmark paper ballots for their municipal elections this November because it would be too difficult to train voters how to use these new devices, these so-called pens and so-called pieces of paper. They couldn't possibly train them how to fill in those ovals, uh, by November after 20 years of voting on touchscreen computers. And so that's what the state is fighting for, to keep Georgia's systems completely unverifiable. And they are not the only state. I received this uh, email this morning uh, via Bradcast at Bradblog.com, where you are welcome to write me anytime. This came from Richard Hayes Phillips, our friend who uh, spent years examining by hand as many of the ballots as he could back in Ohio after the 2004 presidential election there, where George W. Bush is said to have defeated John Kerry. Remember that? Even though the public was never allowed to actually count the paper ballots used in most of the state? Well, uh, Richard Hayes Phillips's 2007 book documenting that effort is titled Witness to a Crime, a Citizen's Audit. Of an American election—that's about the 2004 Uh, election—he writes in response to yesterday's program with Marilyn on the state of Georgia. uh, Stunning work, Brad, as usual. Well, thank you, Richard. (laughs) Motive and uh, motive and means always exists for election theft. He writes, "You have established that the opportunity existed also." Conspiracy theories are only credible if very few people would be required to pull it off. Three persons or even one of the three could have flipped the state of Georgia. So he is correct. And it is one of the things that I've been trying and trying and trying to point out uh, since everyone began freaking out about Russia and their alleged interference in our elections. Sure. Be worried about Russia. And Iran and China, and North Korea, and yes, Great Britain, and France, and Spain, and Canada, and take your pick, and yes, some woman living with cats in Seattle. Because that's all it takes. That's all it takes to flip an entire state by flipping an entire county, all of which can flip an entire presidential election. Are we nuts? Yes. Answer yes. Yes, we are nuts. Because you know, if you haven't noticed after elections, even after the very closest ones, like Ohio 2004, are those with the most surprise ending in the history of American democracy like say the presidential election of 2016. Won by uh, reportedly won by one candidate who would have lost had just three votes in each precinct in Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania been registered to his opponent instead of to him. Even in an election such as that, as you also heard play out on the broadcast two years ago, even in an election like that, state laws will prevent the public from ever learning if the person who is said to have won the election for the president of the United States actually won that election because we cannot wait until after the election to complain about the system, about the terrible system, about the unoverseeable system. Uh, You know, you take it from me. You you must do this. You must try to make it overseeable and transparent right now, not after Uh, Something has gone terribly wrong because, take it from me, by then it's almost guaranteed to be way too late, too late to do anything about it. And by the way, you'll be considered a conspiracy theorist. You'll be uh, considered uh, sour grapes. So the time to worry about our election system, the time to take action on our election system, the time to make sure our election system is actually overseeable by the public is right now, not later. Not after it's too late.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Blinkist, the app that's here to help you read more books than you thought possible, or at least get the core insights out of them. Just as I curate and distill the most important points about political issues, Blinkist does that for thousands of nonfiction books, condensing them down into just 15 minutes for you to read or listen to as audiobooks. I just had one of my more meta Blinkist experiences. Uh, I was sitting here wondering which Blink I should recommend to you. Uh, When I got the urge to just start wasting time, so I scrolled through the Blinkist app at all of my saved books, and I came across the Pomodoro technique, which is about a popular technique to reduce procrastination. So I spent the time I felt like wasting listening to a 15-minute version of a book meant to help you stop procrastinating. And, of course, I listened to it at double speed, so it was a perfectly good seven or eight minutes of time spent feeling like I was wasting time, but actually learning how not to. So whatever your reason for wanting to consume books faster, check out Blinkist for yourself, and for a limited time, they have a special offer for our listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial. And of course, you can cancel any time. Blinkist.com slash best. This has happened
7: before and it's happening again. And in fact, we've covered this before on presidential election days. Video has caught an electronic voting machine switching votes and we now have at least three reports of this happening in at least two different Mississippi counties based on the latest information and this could still change. Uh, This was the Republican gubernatorial primary runoff. We have one video of it for you posted to Facebook by Sally Kate Walker, which shows a man attempting to vote for bill Waller and the machine selecting instead Tate Reeves. Uh, multiple times as the person taps the screen. So a few things here. This particular video is from the Burgess voting precinct in Oxford and the same machines that are in use there are in use in lots of the state of Mississippi. The secretary of state's office has put out a statement saying they're aware of the issue and they dispatched a technician as soon as they were told about it. Uh, this was a TSX machine. It's owned by the county. It was tested by local officials. Two machines in Calhoun County have reportedly shown similar vote switching behavior. So okay, this is a Republican gubernatorial primary runoff. They're fixing it. What happens if this takes place on presidential election day in November of 2020 when turnout is higher, when the stakes are, yes, they are higher, even though of course we want every election to be secure when one precinct or a group of precincts could conceivably turn a state and one state could conceivably decide the presidential election. What do you do now? As of right now, there's no reason to think that this is foul play. Uh, this is most likely the screen being miscalibrated. So when you tap on a part of the screen, it's interpreted as you tapping on a different part of the screen. It's simple enough but it's potentially 110% chaotic on election day. If one wanted to manipulate an election, you only need to interfere with some portion of the machines and some portion of precincts in just one or two states. And you can hypothetically turn the results of a presidential election. And this is where the left and right are truly different. I talk so many times on the show about there's lots of areas where left and right are basically the same perpetuating the status quo. There are other areas er, areas where Democrats and Republicans are very different when it comes to uh, sexual harassment by people within their party. Democrats and Republicans are very different when it comes to net neutrality. Democrats and Republicans are very differently. Republicans have made it clear for more than a decade now, they are simply not super concerned with election interference election tampering voter suppression, et cetera, as long as their candidate wins. And they understand that a lot of this stuff helps the Republican over the Democrat helps the more conservative Republican over the more moderate Republican within Republican primaries. But in principle, they don't care as long as they benefit from it in some way, shape or form. The left on the other hand, we just want 100% secure elections. We want everyone who wants to vote and attempts to vote to have their vote counted. And the reality is of course that the left benefits from greater turnout and more votes being counted because the country has moved to the left. There's no, you know, the right will say, well, you guys just want more people to vote because it helps you. That's right. I want the highest level of participation in the system that we have with the understanding that the uh, will of the people will be most accurately reflected when as many people as possible actually go out and vote. When the right hears about this stuff, they say, well, both sides do it even when it's not totally clear that something is actually being done. And when you zoom out, it is far more red States that have the electronic voting machines with no paper trail, which if one wanted to tamper with an election through the voting machines that have no paper trail, it would be a really great place to start. So this is again, just another one of the many anecdotes of this taking place. It's not presidential election day, but we all understand the risk here, or at least we should understand the risk here. What's the next step with these particular voting machines? I don't know, but these types of voting machines are in use in uh, a lot of the United States.
8: The same night, uh, election night last year when Georgia had its big marquee governor's race and Stacey Abrams narrowly lost to Brian Kemp and then refused to concede. And there's all that attention on what was going on in Georgia. That same night in Georgia, there was a lower profile race that hasn't been a matter of national focus the way that Stacey Abrams governor's race was. But it has turned into a mystery ever since that is getting weirder and more difficult with each passing month. It was the l- lieutenant governor's race, um, that night in Georgia, last November. Um, in the lieutenant governor's race last election night, the Republican candidate won that race too. But when people started sifting through the results from the lieutenant governor's race, the numbers did paint an odd picture. This is a sample ballot from Georgia last year. Typically in statewide elections, there is a drop-off in the number of votes that are cast as people make their way down the ticket. So if you're just using this ballot as a guide in statewide races, what I mean is that more people, the most people, tend to vote in the governor's race. More people vote in the governor's race than vote in the lieutenant governor's race. More people tend to vote for the lieutenant governor's race than vote in the secretary of state's race. More people tend to vote for the secretary of state than vote for the state attorney general. And this trend usually happens all the way down the ballot in statewide elections. It's like the opposite of a trickle-down effect, or maybe it's a trickle-down effect. It's a, a kind of decay in turnout, As you make your way down the ticket, more people vote for top of the ticket stuff than vote down the bottom. People sort of run out of steam and stop filling out the bubbles as they go down their ballot. That's almost always how it goes. That is not what happened in Georgia last year. Of all the statewide races on the Georgia ticket last year, fewer people voted for lieutenant governor, second race on the ballot, than any other race. And by a lot. What was going on there? Around 80,000 fewer people voted in the lieutenant governor's race than in other races even further down the ballot, like votes for labor commissioner. More people voted for labor commissioner than voted for lieutenant governor, the state's number two elected official. That's weird. That drop off in the lieutenant governor's race vote has been a mystery since November 2018. And it has led local reporters to try to figure out why and how that happened in Georgia. Well, today we got this from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The paper took a look at one crucial precinct in Georgia, a precinct that had seven voting machines. In that precinct, the Democrat won every single race on every single machine, except for one machine, Quote, to find out a clue, excuse me, to find a clue about what might have gone wrong with Georgia's election last fall, look no further than voting machine number three at the Winterville train depot outside Athens, Georgia. On machine number three, Republicans won every race. But on each of the other six machines in that precinct, Democrats won every race. The odds of an anomaly that large are less than one in a million. Um, but there might be a simple explanation for it. If you took that one outlier machine, machine number three, and you switched the vote tallies, you awarded all its democratic votes to Republicans and all its Republican votes to Democrats, that anomaly would disappear. And those results on machine number three would statistically fall right in line with the other six machines in that precinct. So one machine had literally exactly opposite results than you would expect in terms of party-line voting. It's like the results just got reversed in terms of the parties on that one machine. It would be like if you took all the votes from that one machine and held them up to a mirror before you counted them. This scoop from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution was born out of documents that were unearthed by a public records request. The paper says those same documents have been given to the Oversight Committee in the House of Representatives, which is investigating what happened in George's election last year. More than 15,000 pages of records have been turned over to that committee. But if what's in those 15,000 pages are evidence like from that one precinct with the one phantom voting machine, which seems to have taken every vote backwards, what's the oversight committee going to do about that evidence? What should they do about it? Joining us now is Kristen Clark, president and executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Ms. Clark, thank you very much for being with us tonight.
1: Thanks for having me.
8: So there is always a a low level of sort of low level rumble of worry in this country about whether our elections are running right. Um, There's also a well-founded concern that people might be discouraged from turning out to vote at all if they don't have confidence that it will matter, that their vote will be properly cast and and properly counted. Um, Given that sort of that balance, that concern on both sides, What is your take on these problems that we saw yesterday in Mississippi and that we saw last year in Georgia?
1: That these are red flags of a democracy that is broken and screaming out for repair. These are not conspiracy theories that we're talking about, Rachel. These are real issues that voters have been facing with uh, intensifying degree over the last several years and Georgia is kind of the in the belly of the beast, if you will, when it comes to all things that are broken in our democracy. We we, we see widespread voter suppression, but we actually just sued the state of Georgia in federal court over uh, these very issues. The fact that across the state of Georgia, they are using outdated, vulnerable machines that are hackable. And in the course of our trial, we talked about that drop off that you just highlighted, Rachel. A federal contractor actually looked at that drop off and said there's a one in 10,000 chance that you'd see a drop off for the lieutenant governor race that spikes back up when you go down uh, to those races at the lower end of the ballot. In our case. Uh, there was evidence presented by the state's own expert. Whenever When you put this evidence before any reasonable person, they come up with the same conclusion. Georgia's own expert, Dr. Shamos, um, agreed that uh, Georgia's equipment is outdated and antiquated and hackable, um, that they failed to conduct audits. And they actually use a version of Microsoft uh, for their software um, that hasn't been updated in 10 years. Microsoft actually no longer um, updates or creates security patches for this this software. Um, and, and so from Georgia's own expert, this is a broken system. Um, the judge in our case issued a ruling about two weeks ago um, declaring Georgia's system null and void. Uh, Georgia has to go back to the drawing board and put a new uh, system in place at all deliberate speed. This is the first time a federal court has actually struck down an entire state's voting system uh, because they are violating the fundamental right to vote. But it's time for states like Mississippi and South Carolina and Texas and Florida that are using these paperless uh, antiquated systems that uh, can't be audited. Uh, it's time for them to to modernize these systems. And we've got to do it before 2020.
8: Is it feasible logistically to get the systems? even Let's just focus on Georgia for a second. Is it logistically feasible to have that whole system not only installed, but tested and audited and running up to snuff um, in time for an election that's coming around the bend in November 2020?
1: They don't have any choice. I mean, they've cried about the expense involved and the time involved. But at the end of the day, we're talking about the most sacred right in our democracy, the right to vote. And at every turn in Georgia for two decades, we've seen a system that is broken and we've seen problems that are intensifying. So... Um, You know, it's time that they step up. There are they are supposed to put a new system in place in 2020. But what that means is that for voters right now who are going to the polls in Georgia for municipal elections, they have every reason to have grave concerns about the integrity of their ballot. Uh, So this is a moment that requires vigilance. We know that these problems are nationwide. We know that we are up against threats, both domestic and foreign, when it comes to uh, the hacking of our systems in our country. Uh, So, you know, our, our plan now is to take this victory in Georgia in federal court and to hold other states accountable that are failing to update and modernize their systems and give voters the confidence that they deserve when they go to the polls and cast a ballot.
9: So how do we fix it? The good thing is that most of the solutions to better our election infrastructure are practical. That's Danielle Root, Voting Rights Manager at
2: the Center for American Progress. She says the first order of business for election officials
9: is to get back to basics. And that means paper the first thing that states should do, if this is applicable to them, is if they are still using any kind of electronic paperless voting machines, so typically we call those DRE machines, they need to replace them with paper-based voting systems. You know, election security experts, computer scientists um, have all warned about the vulnerabilities of these paperless machines. And the reason is that, as you have probably explored in this show already, is that there's no reliable paper record of the voter's intent and in how he or she chose to vote. And so we need those paperless electronic machines to be done away with and to be replaced with a paper-based system that can be relied upon then later on by election officials in post-election audits.
2: It's interesting we're talking about paper because it's one of the things we assume is sort of outdated, right? We do everything on our phones and everything else. But it's an interesting point that you make. What about auditing elections? We had a guest on that said, you know, we can do that to a certain extent, but we don't have a system in place to audit all votes. Is that right?
9: Right. So, you know, you think of after after an election, after Election Day, there are millions and millions of votes cast so it's really not feasible to audit every single vote. And it just, you don't need to either. You just need to be able to audit the precise number of votes necessary to confirm the outcome of an election. And the scope of an audit will depend on the margin of victory in a given contest. So if the margin of victory is quite large, uh, election officials should only have to audit a, a smaller number of ballots, whereas if the margin of victory is small, election officials should be able to alter the scope of the audit to make sure that they're auditing more ballots um, to confirm the outcome of that tight election. But auditing really is necessary to protect our elections and ensure the integrity of our elections. And, you know, paper-based voting systems are incredibly important, but um, the overall impact of a paper-based system depends largely on election officials and states' ability and commitment to carrying out robust post-election audits that then look at those paper ballots, um, a small sample size, for example, um, to ensure that voters' intent and voters' choice are accurately represented in the outcome.
2: What about training when it comes to voter, uh, folks that work at the
9: polls? How important is that? training for election officials and at the state and local level election officials is of utmost importance, particularly under the current threat environment, when we know that the vast majority of attacks and attempts at manipulating our elections are cyber-based. Our election officials at all levels work incredibly hard to protect our elections. And for the most part, they do a really, really excellent job. But most election officials are not trained cyber experts. And, you know, we can't really expect them to be. There's, you know, the, the cyber expert community is, is growing growing by the day in this country, but we need a lot of election officials. So we really need to begin training and intensively training election officials on how to recognize cyber attacks, uh, including spear phishing attempts, and the proper way to respond to any fishy or uh, suspicious activity that they see either on election day or when they are managing or overseeing the state's voter registration systems. So, you know, showing a video or, you know, having a a conference for election officials once a year or twice a year is is fine. It's a good starting point, but more certainly needs to be done. Colorado, for example, carried out uh, what they call election war games, where um, It was really role-playing various uh, election emergency scenarios, including cyber attacks, that included election officials from all over the state so that they were prepared and had actually practiced responding to some of these attacks. And that's the kind of intensive training that I hope becomes implemented nationwide for future elections. And what
2: about the federal government? I mean, I'm still surprised that we don't have a sort of federal voting system but where couldn't the federal government come in and help some of the states?
9: Excellent question as well. Um, so DHS, who has sort of been managing the federal government's response to the Russian attacks in 2016, and DHS has a variety of services that it offers states to Bolster their election infrastructure, including performing vulnerability assessments, which are free to states. By the way, there was, of course, a waiting list for states to receive that kind of assistance, which which was unfortunate. But as far as I as as I know, um, DHS has now sort of caught up and is 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 performing those assessments at a, um, a speedier rate, which is great. It, but in addition to supplying sort of advanced cybersecurity measures and tests for state election infrastructure, um, the federal government plays a significant role in information sharing with state and local officials. Federal officials, uh, particularly national security experts, are privy to some of the more classified or higher level threats to our elections that state officials and local election officials are not privy to and are not receiving receiving talking points on, but also readouts of who our adversaries are and what they're trying to do to infiltrate our elections. So there needs to be a direct line of communication between the federal government, what they're hearing, what they know, and the state and local officials who are working to protect our elections on a daily basis. And there have been efforts since 2016 to better that communication line. For example, DHS and EAC, the Election Assistance Administration, Um, have health conferences with uh, state and local officials to sort of talk about these issues, how they're going to better the information sharing system. But there's always room for improvement. Uh, there are still states and and local officials who say that they, you know, are unaware of of what's really happening in their locations in their jurisdictions. So information sharing still needs needs some improvement between the federal government and state and locals. But I do think there has been improvements uh, since 2016. So that's that's always always good.
0: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, fight at the state and local level for hand-marked paper ballots and elections. First, some good news, though. Just a few days ago, the state Senate in Maine voted to implement rank-choice voting for the 2020 elections. And in Massachusetts, a similar effort has just cleared a major hurdle— but how can we benefit from things like ranked choice voting or a national popular vote system if people have to use electronic voting machines that are hackable, broken, and don't have voter verifiable paper ballots? The federal government is not going to save us, at least not for now. So, it's time to turn to your state and local governments, and that starts with understanding how your state elections operate and who's in charge. As of November 2018, 21 states had paper ballot voting. The other 29 are using either direct recording electronic systems, aka electronic voting machines, or using a combination of paper and electronic voting. Some require paper trails, and some don't. As of today, the eight states with electronic voting that don't require backup paper ballots are Texas, Mississippi, Indiana, Kansas, Louisiana, Tennessee, Kentucky, and New Jersey. We've included the Ballotpedia page with all of this information and links to each state's voting policies in the show notes. Next, if you don't already know, find out who the chief election official is in your state and how they got their job. Only 24 states have voter-elected secretaries of state as the ultimate authority over their elections. The rest have a board or commission, a governor-appointed secretary of state, the lieutenant governor, or an official elected by the state legislature. As we saw with now-Governor Brian Kemp in Georgia during the midterms, the person or people in these positions have serious power. We've included a link in the show notes to help you easily find out how your state election officials are determined, find out what they stand for, and put pressure on them, or fight to unseat them if they aren't supporting voter-verifiable hand-marked paper ballots. And finally, because America has a highly decentralized election administration system, local cities, towns, counties, and municipalities have a fair amount of control over elections. They are the ones running the actual elections on the ground, dealing with election day problems firsthand, and they often handle the awarding of voting equipment contracts. Even though the state dictates overarching election policies, each town's election can operate quite differently from another within the same state. Start going to your town and city council public meetings and make noise. Highlight the serious problems with unverifiable electronic voting machines and barcodes. And emphasize the critical importance of hand-marked paper ballots and voter-verifiable paper trails. It is much easier to change minds at this local level. To learn more about election integrity and fight for hand-marked paper ballots, check out the Brennan Center for Justice, Fair Vote, ProtectOurVotes.com, The Coalition for Good Governance, Let America Vote, and Stand Up America. And in a related side note, National Voter Registration Day is September 24th. In case you need an excuse to get yourself or someone you know registered, Vote Writers is hosting registration drives across the country, and they need volunteers. So head over to VoteRiders.org. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if ensuring election integrity in our country and thereby saving our democracy is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about fighting at the state and local level for handmarked paper ballots via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too.
7: Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Because that's how
2: you make a difference in this fickle world of change.
6: As the rest of the media are focused on the horse race and the horse race only, we have stayed focused largely on the track conditions on which those horses will be running next year when the first votes in the presidential primaries are set to begin to, 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 to be cast in less than five months from now. That's how close we are, five months away from the first votes being cast in the 2020 election. So we have covered, uh, for those who missed it, among other things, uh, revelations by cybersecurity researchers that voting systems in 10 different states, including major battleground states like Michigan, Wisconsin and Florida, have been discovered uh, that their voting systems are just and their tabulators are just sitting there on the Internet in at least 10 different states for as much as a year and perhaps for many years prior to that. That despite false claims from elections officials and private voting system vendors that these systems cannot be hacked because, well, they're never connected to the Internet. Turns out that is a lie. That is not true. As the researchers discovered and as cybersecurity journalist Kim Zetter, who joined us on the show to talk about it, to talk about her chilling exclusive at Vice a week or so ago, explained on this program. Then there's the federal judge in Georgia the week before who ordered the uh, Peach State to cease using its 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems that have been used statewide for nearly the past 20 years in Georgia. Because after a two year long court case uh, where the judge found that the system's were, quote, unsecure, unreliable, seriously flawed, and vulnerable to failure, breach, contamination, and attack. After that, she said they can no longer be used after 2019. In the process, she found that the systems they have been using, that we have been complaining about for almost those full 20 years, uh, that they are an unconstitutional violation of voters' rights to have their vote cast as counted and as intended. The battleground state of Georgia is now set to replace those unconstitutional, unverifiable touchscreen systems with new touchscreen voting systems that are equally unverifiable. And the plaintiff in that case, the successful plaintiff in that case, has now uh, will be suing to block those as well, those new systems in favor of hand marked paper ballots due to many of the same problems that those systems have as previous, their previous unverifiable systems did, just like the ones being brought to Los Angeles. But this is actually a court case in the state of Georgia here, meh. Most people haven't even heard about it. The plaintiff in that Georgia case, Marilyn Marks of the Coalition for Good Governance, joined us on the show on the day the ruling came down from the federal U.S. District Court to say she would, yes, also be suing to stop the new systems as well. Citizens in Philadelphia, in New York, in Georgia have all used legal petitions to successfully demand new security reviews of their new 100% unverifiable touchscreen computer ballot marking devices that are now certified for use in those states. They petitioned for new security reviews, and they got it after it was revealed that the initial reviews failed to do security tests That might have revealed that, in fact, there are vulnerabilities in those systems to hacking and to fraudulent votes being added without the voter even knowing, as independent analysts have easily discovered. And so now those states are looking at those systems again. And, of course, there is the fact that touchscreen computer BMDs are 100 percent unverifiable after an election, even if they do work properly as planned. We can never know that they did. They cannot be meaningfully audited. At least that's according to the UC Berkeley professor who invented the protocol that is universally regarded as the best type of post-election manual spot check of paper ballots known as risk-limiting audits. We detailed 22 municipal city governments just a few days ago in Texas whose computer networks were taken out of service entirely in recent weeks. Well, they weren't taken out of service by them. They were taken out of service by hackers in a coordinated ransomware attack that makes it so that they cannot even use their own computer systems anymore to do regular, you know, city things in their municipalities. Uh, because of a ransomware attack that seems to be from a foreign entity who is demanding two and a half million dollars to unlock the municipality's systems to allow those cities to begin using their computer networks once again. All, all as states and counties around the country are moving to become more, not less reliant on computerized voting and tabulation software and networked electronic poll books at precincts. On Election Day, which, if struck by that type of an attack, would prevent voters from being able to cast a vote at all unless paper poll books and hand-marked paper ballots are available at the precincts. Most such precincts, apparently even including Los Angeles in next year's elections, will not have such provisions. They will not have backup poll books. They will not have backup handmarked paper ballots for people to use. And I say apparently they won't because LA County's registrar, Dean Logan, refuses to publicly answer the question as to whether there will be handmarked paper ballots available to voters at the polling place next year when they switch to this new touchscreen system? Or will there be paper poll book backups even at the 1,000 voting centers that will now be used in Los Angeles next year instead of 4,000 community precincts in just one of the major overhauls of L.A. County's entire voting system? Dean Logan simply will not answer that question. Will there be handmarked paper ballots, as the California Secretary of State has mandated for years in this state? Seems like an easy question. He won't answer. I have been asking for days and days and days, actually going back weeks on Twitter. Everyone is saying, why won't you answer that question that Brad is asking you? He will not answer it. By the way, neither will the California Secretary of State. Now, on our previous program, there's more. On our previous program, we were joined by a uh, documentarian and election security advocate, Lulu Freistat, to, de- to detail the discoveries that were made in Las Vegas about two weeks ago at the DEF CON voting village. Which is a hackers event where just about every system, all of which, every voting system, all of which are still used around the country today, including some of the new ones that are now used or planned uh, for use in 2020 in states and counties in Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Texas, West Virginia, uh, Kentucky. New York, New Jersey, Kansas, Tennessee, Indiana, South Carolina and as of Friday when we went to air on the broadcast they will also now be used in the key battleground state of North Carolina where that state's Democratic led Board of Elections chairman uh well they held a meeting the Board of Elections uh to approve the new systems for use these new unverifiable BMD systems and despite Every single public comment before the vote, except for the one from the lobbyist for the voting machine company, ES&S, whose hackable machines uh, were to be certified that day for use by the board. All the people, all the public who showed up one after another begged the board not to approve those ES&S voting systems, those touchscreen voting systems, the vote. Was three to two by, uh, among the uh, Board of uh, State Board of Elections in North Carolina to approve those systems anyway, despite what the public said. This, again, a Democratic majority State Board of Elections in North Carolina approved these systems. They were certified by the board uh, three to two as the newly appointed Democratic board chair voted with the two Republicans on the board to give the new touchscreen machines a big thumbs up in North Carolina. A call for the uh, for that Democratic board chair's uh, resignation was then announced that night by Republican voting systems expert Marilyn Marks of Coalition for Good Governance, frequent uh, uh, guest on our program. She's the one who sued and won against those very machines in Georgia. But Marilyn also happens to be a North Carolina resident. Actually, she votes there and she spoke against those machines at last week's hearing. At the State Board of Elections on Friday, along with all of the others calling for hand-marked paper ballots. But no, the board voted against the voters. All of this in defiance of warnings from not just cybersecurity and voting systems experts, but also amid warnings about foreign intrusion into our election systems during the 2016 elections. And the continuing warnings from the FBI and the DHS and the special counsel Robert Mueller's office and the bipartisan U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee warning about uh, both foreign and domestic intrusions, that they expect even more and they expect them to be worse in 2020 than they were in 2016. But while the major corporate national media is covering just the horse race, they're ignoring most of these concerns that I am detailing for you. Uh, just the horse race, I guess that matters. But so does the track conditions on which they are running.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with The Takeaway, laying out the problems with our elections going back to the year 2000. The broadcast made the connection between the Capital One hack and the terrible idea of running our elections on electronic voting machines. The David Pakman Show highlighted a recent viral video of an electronic voting machine malfunctioning. The Rachel Maddow Show looked at the problem with voting machines in Georgia and how they are part of a bigger problem. The takeaway looked at some of the solutions states should be implementing to fix our election system. And finally, we just heard the broadcast castigating election commissioners around the country for moving toward being more rather than less reliant on electronic voting systems, while security advocates continue to demand hand-marked paper ballots. Members this week will hear an additional interview with a security expert about the possible future of using blockchain to secure electronic voting— As it stands now, the future is not looking terribly bright. Uh, Plus, I have a very important question that I'm going to be asking the members to weigh in on, so I'll be explaining all of that on the bonus show as well. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now... We'll hear from you, and as you will hear, uh, unfortunately, uh, Alan from Connecticut's message came. He just didn't quite meet the deadline, so this message intended for before uh, previous episode is now being played late. Uh, apologies, scheduling. That's how it goes.
3: Hey Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in from the deep woods here to prequel. You're designing cities for, you know, environmentally fr- friendly infrastructures, etc. And wanted to just put a little plug out there. About four years ago, I think I called in to tell you and the listeners that I had put 26 solar panels on my roof. And so for the last five years, I've covered 100% of the energy, electricity that I use through the solar panels. And so, actually, in March, I also bought an electric car, because I am not in a place that has public transportation available, and so I went with one of the affordable electric cars, and it has been phenomenal. It's actually fun to drive again, and um, I feel good about driving, and I will feel guilty, and when I have to bring the kids somewhere because they forgot something, it's like, no sweat, we're going there powered by the sun, so I'm upset that businesses, even the big box stores, they should have solar panels covered their roof. And part of the reason why they don't is there's no real tax incentive for them like there is for homeowners, but there needs to be a better system with that to encourage more green building and infrastructure through policies and, and, and so forth because business will always be business and buildings will always be done as cheap as possible for as much profit as possible, unless they're forced some other way. So anyway, driving green, living green, and loving it. Thanks, stay awesome.
4: Hi Jay, Dave from Olympia. Just listened to the episode about aura press Freedom. One thing stood out to me interestingly It was a great episode, but one piece that one of the commentators referred to this uh, study, and and they were using it to draw the distinction kind of between the members of the political parties and how they feel about the media. And they said the statistic that, uh, and I'm going to get the numbers close, 65% of Democrats said they trust the press. And I think it was, quote, trust, quote, the press. But only 25% of Republicans, quote, trust the press. It's like, well, that's kind of interesting on its face. I, I want to just strangle the person that created that poll question because it's so unnuanced. It's like, why don't you trust the press? And, you know, I think the 75% of Republicans that aren't trusting the press are because, you know, the press is questioning the dear leader and is trying to hold power to account. And the, 45, 35% of Democrats feel that no, the press is too close to power and too unwilling to hold power to account and ask tough questions. You know, the kind of blah journalism and the celebrity journalism thing. But if the person creating the poll questions limits it to do you trust the press, it seems to paint you know, this, uh, this monotone, either you do or you don't, and clearly everyone who doesn't trust the press should fall into the same camp. And so it, it, it paints this weird false equivalency that either everyone who doesn't trust the press is doing it because the press is evil and lying and not, you know, praising Mr. Trump, To to the extent that he deserves, or everyone who doesn't trust the press is, you know, feels the press isn't doing a good enough job to hold power to account, which I don't think is true at all. Anywho, amazing episode as always. Stay awesome.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Jill McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, as promised at the top of the show, I want to talk about... It's a debate. I hate that it's a debate, but it is accurate to call it a debate between election security advocates and disability advocates. And I say that I hate that it's a debate because I want to reject the premise almost outright that these things really are in conflict with each other. The way I see it, I don't think that they are very uh, much in conflict, but I understand the arguments that are being made and it's important to share them. So we'll get into some of the details. Now, of course, multiple organizations, uh, advocating for persons with disabilities will, uh, have lots to say on this. So I may miss some arguments that are coming from different angles. I happen to go to the National Federation of the Blind and look at their official resolution chock full of whereases and therefores that explain the core of their argument and their conclusions. And their conclusion is that everyone in the country should be made to use electronic ballot marking device machines to cast their votes. That is their conclusion. And so I wanted to go through some of their arguments for why they uh, come to that conclusion. One that I I fully admit, I was completely ignorant of this, is secrecy. Totally legitimate concern, especially in an era of heightened partisanship and anger, and, and not just for the general public, but for persons with disabilities, often are the you know the victims of violence and things like that. So they mentioned specifically that in order to cast one's ballot without fear or intimidation or anything like that, you must be able to cast your ballot independently and secretly. And so that dispels the idea that, well, you could use a paper ballot. You could just have a helper help you because that's not secret. And the crux of the Uh, The ballot marking devices that they argue is that because the paper ballots that come out the back of a ballot marking device look different than the ballots provided to everyone else who would mark their choices by hand, that infringes on a disabled person's right to a secret ballot because they look different. People could know this is the ballot That had been casted by a disabled person. And especially if there was only one or two disabled people who came in to a particular polling place, it completely dispels the idea of secrecy. And so their conclusion is, and so therefore, everyone should have to use these machines. And I just thought, well, that's a silly conclusion. Clearly, the conclusion is that all the ballots should look the same, regardless of how they're marked, either by hand or by machine. There's no reason... Therefore, everyone has to use the same machines. We have the technology to make ballots look the same. So no problem there. I think we can dispel that as an argument for machines because there's another way to accomplish the same goal. And then uh, the other I don't I don't think the. Federation for the Blind mentioned this in their resolution, but one of the general arguments is about creating a separate but equal system and that that's just a bad way to do things as a general principle. And as a general principle, I agree. I think that whenever possible, whenever we can build infrastructure or systems or documentation or anything like that and we can make it universally accessible, we should. Everything should just be accessible to everyone because, as the classic case of uh, sidewalk scoops proves, when we design for people with disabilities, it often helps everyone else in the meantime. However, that's a general principle and doesn't necessarily apply equally well in all scenarios. So for a simple example... You could point to the fact that we have a limited number of parking spaces designated for disabled people. And you could argue either way. You could say that makes sense because we make provisions for people with disabilities, but we still manage to maximize the number of cars that can fit into a parking lot. Whereas if you made every single space uh, accessible to disabled persons, then we'd lose like a third of the parking spaces. And I could see either argument on that. I could say the status quo makes sense because if we have enough parking spaces to accommodate disabled people, then it's better to use the rest of the space space efficiently. Or I could imagine, hey, no, no, no. We should just have every space be big enough so that we don't have a separate but equal. You know, some spaces are for some people and other spaces are for other people. I can really see that either direction. But in that case, we're just talking about efficient use of space. When it comes to elections, we're talking about the foundation of our democracy and threats thereto. So we have to apply a different set of reasoning to it to make sure we are making the right decision because there are real tradeoffs involved. Now, another concrete argument made by the Federation for the Blind is that if we don't mandate that everyone use these electronic machines, then the companies that make them wouldn't enjoy a large enough market opportunity so that they wouldn't necessarily put in the same investment into the machines. Therefore, the machines wouldn't be as good. They wouldn't be as secure and so on. And this argument infuriates me because on one hand, it may be true, but on the other, it's terrible because it, it seeds the idea that machines for our elections should be built by private corporations, when there's another perfectly good argument, which is that the federal government should mandate standards and, frankly, standardize our entire election system across the country. This is Elizabeth Warren's plan. I just read it, talking about how we need to standardize the ballots across the country they should be accessible. They should be based on easy-to-understand design principles. Any machines should be state-of-the-art and mandated to incredibly high standards by the federal government, thereby creating a market, even if the federal government didn't design them themselves, if it was uh, you know, contracted out to a corporation. The market would be the size of the country, perfectly large enough for any company to be happy to take that contract. And for the federal government to hold it to incredibly high standards for security and transparency, which we currently don't have by any stretch of the imagination, as we heard in today's show. So the idea that we need to create a market in order for these companies to do a good job, I say screw that entirely. We need federal standards that make corporations do a good job or the government should just do it itself. And then one more thought on the sort of separate but equal argument is that uh, forcing people with disabilities to use a machine that not everyone else has to use creates problems. They already made the argument that, well, the machines may not be as good because of the market value of it. There's also the idea, which is very valid, that if there's only one electronic voting machine per precinct... It's possible that the people running the precinct, the volunteers, may not have very much experience with it. They may not be very good at using it. All perfectly valid. So again, Elizabeth Warren's plan and basically everyone's plan who advocates for hand-marked paper ballots but who wants to make provisions for people with disabilities, we say, clearly we need more funding if necessary and mandates for more training so that we don't have that problem. We don't have to make everyone vote on an electronic voting machine so that election workers know how to use the machine. We just need to make sure those election workers know how to use the machine, whether everyone uses it or not. Again, we have simple solutions to these very real, genuine problems that the disability advocates are bringing up. So one last note on on the idea of having different people use different machines. The disability advocates understand the security risks to electronic voting machines. They have heard these arguments. Their response is, we need to do audits. We need to do security audits before elections. We need to do election result audits after the elections. And we just need to do as good of a job as we possibly can to make these systems as secure as we possibly can. Of course, the election security experts say there is no way to do that. And we cannot possibly have an election that is as secure as possible unless we use paper ballots. And the disability advocates just want to imagine a world in which if we try hard enough, we can secure them. So it's a nice idea to strive for, but here's another thing that they would say. They would say, okay, look, okay, so you want to have different people vote on different machines, partially because these electronic machines are insecure. So great. You want all the disabled people to cast their votes on the insecure machines? we're not even talking about separate but equal anymore. Now we're talking about separate and distinctly unequal. Here's my response to that. The larger a technological system is, an electronic system like voting machines, the larger it is, the more of a target it becomes. So like everyone sort of knows that Windows computers are more susceptible to viruses than Macs. And it's not necessarily because one system is inherently superior to the other. It's that one is so much bigger than the other. It's so much more valuable to attack Windows systems because there are so many more of them. So if we make everyone vote on electronic voting machines, we are creating a bigger target that is more likely to be attacked. When we restrict electronic voting to people with disabilities, Because of the provisions that they need uh, to cast secure, independent, secret ballots, it actually makes the target so small that it is less likely to be attacked in the first place. So moving to a a hand-marked paper ballot for the majority and electronic voting machines for those who need it don't just make the vote more secure for the people who vote on paper. It makes it more secure for people who vote on the electronic machines themselves, Whereas mandating that everyone use electronic machines makes it less secure for everyone, so much so that it literally imperils the legitimacy of our democracy. So in a world in which we have a strong, vibrant, thriving democracy that is not the least bit under attack, I would be far more willing to consider the proposals put forward by the disability advocates – that is not the world we live in. We live in a world in which democracies are being threatened around the world and that those who would threaten democracies will use any daylight, any loophole in the system that allows them to delegitimize the workings of the democracy to claim, even if they lose the election, to claim that they actually won, to claim that, you know, illegal votes were cast or that electronic votes were flipped or anything like that. They will make those claims to try to hold on to power. They absolutely will. And so any negotiation that pits disability advocates against security needs to keep that in mind, needs to see the bigger picture and understand that if there are going to be legitimate, concrete trade-offs that are absolutely unavoidable, then those trade-offs need to be made with a broader perspective on what's at stake. It is not just the ability for people with disabilities to cast independent, secure, private votes. It is the functioning of free and fair elections And the very legitimacy of our democracy that everyone, every single person in this discussion should be putting first and foremost as their top priority. So that is going to be it for today. I would love your thoughts on this or anything else. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. And as I'm getting in the habit of doing each week, I wanted to let you know about this week's poll that we do every week on Patreon. I would love for you to uh, get engaged with it, uh, have your voice heard. Uh, The poll for potential upcoming topics that you can help choose are, real quick, Understanding the crisis and protests in Honduras that is causing the migration crisis. American Empire, a look at uh, the Empire of Borders book and how to hide an empire. It's sort of a history of the American empire as well as how our empire works today in a highly militarized, uh, very hard border sort of world in, in a world of climate refugees, basically mental health in the age of Trump fatigue syndrome. We've been talking about that. We could do a deep dive, redefining citizenship. Trump has been attacking citizenship on all fronts, police and prison abolition. I did an episode sort of recently about police and prison reform, and this is the next step to that. What would actual abolition look like for police and the prison system? Understanding the pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong and Beijing's response—that's big world news that Americans probably don't hear anything Uh, about—looking at the demographics of the 2020 electorate, looking at the rise of women, young people, people of color, and the other side, too—evangelical Christians— and uh, their effects on elections, and finally, the life of David Koch in retrospective, the horrifying legacy that he and his brother have imposed. So, as always, the link to that poll is right in the show notes of today's episode, so check that out. You can also find it by going to patreon.com bestofleft, and a reminder, you do not have to pay or be a, you know, a monthly member or anything like that to be involved. This one is open to the public. So that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode